I hope I'm remembered by a small circle of friends as an eccentric who loved to talk about odd things. Uh, any lasting legacy I don't care about. I mean, I, years from now, if somebody were to stumble on that chicken book and say, this is really interesting, my spirit, wherever it may be, will do a little dance of joy. But legacy doesn't interest me. Here and now does. Being with the ones I love, being, in the words of Bill and Ted, excellent to each other, that's what makes the world go round. Hi, I'm Matt McKee, and welcome to Cherry Bomb the Podcast, a series of conversations with people about food, art, and sustainability. Today, I'm speaking in the studio with Ronald Coltnow, author of Barberton Fried Chicken, an Ohio original, and we'll be delving into that topic quite a bit. This episode of Cherry Bomb the Podcast is sponsored by High Stakes, a part of my Sweet Blast series of limited edition photos available at theartofmattmckee.com. I created the series of bright, colorful, provocative images with the mission to start conversations in the room about the bigger topics of food, art, and sustainability. You can check out the whole series at theartofmattmckee.com. Ron, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Matt. One of the things that always fascinates me is how people have so many different aspects to their lives, and they always have some subjects or concepts that they're willing to take a much deeper dive on. What is Barberton Fried Chicken, and what inspired you to write about this? Well, a few years back, I wrote a book called Barberton Fried Chicken, an Ohio original. I had intended to call it an American original, because in many ways, it's an immigrant story. I am from Akron, Ohio. Near Akron, Ohio, just a few miles to the southwest, is a little burg called Barberton, mm -hmm. which was a factory town. Lots of factories, most notably the Diamond Match Company. Oh, wow. Okay. Which was owned by O.C. Barber. By the way, O.C. stands for Ohio Columbus. So he was the key Ohioan. Anyway, Barber wanted to, as they used to call in the times, boom the town get people to come. Okay. So he advertised all over Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, to get immigrants to come to Barberton to work in his match factory, his glass factory, and all the other industries there. Hmm. The heavy number of Eastern Europeans, notably Serbians, I think it's kind of split between Hungarians and Serbians. One woman named Smilka Topolsky had a small restaurant where she just served sandwiches and soups. Well, sort of typical of any time there's a factory that goes into, or industry goes into yeah, space, actually, there's always the ancillary businesses that pop up around it. Right, they would call them lunchrooms. Mm. Well, one day she was making her own Serbian food in the back room mm -hmm. for her family's dinner. It was a particular type of fried chicken, a cabbage salad that they call kapusta salut, and juvice which is actually from the Turkish, but it's a rice, paprika, onion, and garlic dish, mm. similar to what we would call Spanish rice. Okay. People in the restaurant said, that smells good. You know, forget the soups and sandwiches. I want some of that. <laughs> so Smilka opened her restaurant called Belgrade Gardens. This is just about 100 years ago. It was fried chicken from Serbia, it bears some sem semblance to the Viennese uh, uh, Wiener Backhandel, which literally translates fried chicken, really. And it just took the neighborhood by, by storm. Soon, there were five Serbian and one imitation Hungarian restaurant 
within a one-mile radius, all serving the exact same Serbian-style fried chicken. Interesting. In terms of the the fried chicken, as opposed to like southern fried chicken, is it something about the batter? Is it something about the spice, or am I jumping ahead in the story? No, it's absolutely nothing special about the chicken itself. It's just fresh chicken. It's been dipped in flour, dipped in an egg wash, covered in breadcrumbs, kept overnight in a uh, cooler to, to make sure that the breadcrumbs adhere, mm-hmm. and then. Deep fried in, of all things, lard. Mmm, good old lard. We love lard. <laughs> all right, so so you've got uh, five plus uh, one imitation Hungarian. Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean by imitation Hungarian? They were Hungarians imitating the Serbian oh, recipe. Oh, okay. I, I understand. That was the Mako family. Okay. The Makos have quite an interesting history in Barberton. They were a one-man industry. They owned the sporting goods store, the hotel the restaurant, car parts place, and I believe a towing service. (laughs) Wow. This is in a city of about 30,000 people. Okay. So what inspired you to write about the subject? Well, it was somewhat happenstance. I retired from a a life in in publishing. Mm -hmm. Actually, I worked for many years in bookstores. Then I got a job as a publisher's sales rep, which is actually the greatest job in the world. It consists of reading books, and driving around to bookstores talking about the books. Oh my gosh, yes. Yep. Sounds like heaven. It sounds like heaven, but like for every Michael Andache, you know, I did sell Daniel Steele, Pat Booth, the uh, Barbara Cartland I even sold. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you take the bitter with the sweet, and you can't be the gatekeeper. Yeah. When it comes to books, people are going to read what they want to read, and you shouldn't tell them they can't. Mm. Okay. But anyway, I retired, and I, I knew I wanted to try my hand at writing. Then one day, out of the blue, on Facebook, there was an ad from a company called Arcadia Publishers. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you and everybody knows what Arcadia books look like. They're those little sepia-colored books that basically detail a neighborhood. Yeah. You know, in Boston here, we have one on just about every um, township and neighborhood. I think I have several Jamaica Plain, yeah. Everybody has them. Well, they have a sister company called American Palette, which is only about regional food. And regional food is one of my, my passions in life. Whenever I go somewhere, I try to eat like a local. Well, the Serbian chicken was the regional food from where I grew up, in Akron. And we would eat there in the summer, mostly every single Sunday after swimming. So when they said we're interested in regional foods, immediately <laughs> the light bulb went off. Serbian fried chicken. Yeah. So in terms of research for something like this, part of it, I I assume, would be reminiscing and thinking about the times you did the family dining. But then there's also the the feet on the ground where, you know, there are myths and legends about restaurants, family restaurants all over the place. But actually to get to the truth of them, you have to actually do the homework. So what was your next step? I was able to interview the original owner of Belgrade Gardens. Oh, wow. Excuse me. Not really the original owner, but the son of the original owners, Mike and Smilka Topolsky. Their son took over the business in the 50s, and he's well up in years now, but he was able to sit with me for about an hour and tell me the types of stories that you just can't find in books. I was able to track down the other owners and spend time with them. I even got to interview waitresses and the cooks. Everybody in Akron 
knows a story about the chicken houses. Nobody in Cleveland, which is less than 50 miles away, no one has ever heard of it. Oh, wow. Yeah, I tried to promote the book in Cleveland, and people said, we've never heard of this. What is it? Did that, does that mean that there should be another book about Cleveland fried chicken? No, because I can't really think of any. The only real distinctive <laughs> Cleveland fried chicken is made by the chef Michael Simon. And he was such a big fan of Barberton chicken that he makes his own version. <laughs> when I asked you earlier about, you know, if it was special breading or something like that, you said it, it really wasn't. It was just fried chicken. But what makes this so special? Then? It's what um, a writer for the Beacon Journal, the Akron paper, referred to as the baptism in lard. Uh, <laughs> it's the way it's prepared. Um, okay. This is just simple, perfectly fried, fried chicken. And sometimes simplicity in food can speak much louder than delicate sauces or spices mm -hmm. or uh, trendy preparations. Absolutely. Yeah, the real ethnic um, aspect comes in with the side dishes, okay. the cabbage salad and the... Um, what they now call hot sauce, or juviche, if you want to be really Serbian about it. <laughs> okay. You mentioned to me in one of your email correspondence that we were talking back and forth, uh, a word that, to me, I hadn't seen these two words put together before, but you called it microhistory. Mm -hmm. Can you define what microhistory is? Yes, microhistory is my life. <laughs> it's finding a small literally. object. Yes, literally. Okay. It's like finding a small object and admiring it for what it is, but more importantly, trying to find out where that came from, how it developed, what is the provenance of such things. The, probably the grandfather of the microhistory movement is a writer named Henry Petrovsky, who wrote one book called The Evolution of Useful Things. Hmm. And then there's another book by Petrovsky called The Pencil, 450 pages, and it's only about the history of the pencil. Oh, my gosh. The history of the pencil through the ages, things that developed around the pencil. It's just a fascinating book. Other more contemporary writers, like uh, Mark Herlansky, has done this with Cod. Mm -hmm. He did it with Cod in a great book about New York called The Big Oyster. Okay. And then there are writers like Mary Roach, who writes about things like morticians and the human body, and her new book is about uh, animals gone bad. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes, there was an author that I saw who uh, was talking about fire, and that was his sole subject. It was when I first came out with my Promethean Dream series of photographs that, that it just kind of resonated with me, and I wanted to find out more about it and, and do a deep dive into sort of the history of fire, as much as you can do history when it's in prehistory, which was fascinating. And there was another one about poop, another author I cannot remember. Well, Mary Roach did write about that. That was, I think that was her. I she's wonderful. Are, she's yeah. one of my heroines. Uh, sense of humor, uh, just absolutely wonderful. Like I said, there's the book about the pencil. There's one on the zipper. Um, <laughs> what else have I found? There's a, a book that's been getting, that got a lot of attention a couple of years ago, Consider the Fork, which segues not only um, from a history of silverware, but it segues into a cultural history of eating through the years. How... Ooh. We civilized ourselves. Well, the eating part, my kind of subject. Yes, exactly. I'm not sure how civil I am, but uh, we can go for you that. You know, Bernard Shaw once said, there, it's, I think it's in Major Barbara, there is no love more sincere than the love of food. And that's sort this of the way true. I've lived in my life. <laughs>
I've seen writing described both as an art and as a craft. How would you define writing? It's definitely a craft. Okay. People think that writers sit at home and the muse descends upon them, and they grab their quill pen, dip it in the <laughs> inkwell, and then just dash off, uh, I don't know, a lovely bit of poetry or some inspirational tale. But the truth of the matter is it's sitting at a desk, hours upon hours, writing, looking at it, deleting, writing it again, mm-hmm. going at it. I, unfortunately, had only six months to research, write, and edit my own book. Wow. So um, there are lots of aspects of it I wish I had had time to redo. Okay. In a perfect world, how long would it take you to research a subject like this? Well, I'm researching a topic now, and I've been at it for two years solid. Uh, I believe the research is done, and I've actually oh, this started... Oh, this is for your next book? This is for my next book. Okay. Um, and I see... I'm. I'm trying to collate my notes into legible English. But I hope to start writing in January, and I, I hope to have it done, or at least a rough draft of it done, in six months. Oh, wow. What is the subject? Um, it is the rather unusual nature of the thermos bottle. The thermos bottle. Tracing right. the thermos bottle from Renaissance Italy up through Victorian Scotland into the bustling metropolis of New York at the turn of the last century, and finally culminating on the banks of the Thames River in Connecticut. It's a really interesting story of invention, artistic theft, commerce, (laughs) adventure, and a lot of car crashes and explosions. Oh my gosh. Okay. You've piqued my interest, that's for sure. The forefather of the thermos bottle was the vacuum flask devised by Sir James Dewar at the University of Edinburgh. He was a leading member of the uh, Royal Society in London, and he wanted to have something that would keep gases cold. Okay. So he created this vase. It was a glass vase inside another glass vase from which all the air had been pumped out. All right. It had um, no radiation, no convection. Therefore, something put in there would stay cold. And he used it to lower the temperature using a number of different techniques and found that it could stay cold for hours. In similar fashion to my wife's hydro flask that she uses to take ice water to work with her. It's all the same technology. This technology, believe it or not, goes back to a student of Galileo's, Hmm. who's the man who invented the barometer, which is essentially an evacuated tube filled with mercury. But the operating principle is suction, which goes all the way back to the Egyptians. Okay. Or probably even before that. But anyway, to make the short story long, Dewar was irascible. He fought with everybody. (laughs) He could pick a fight just for the benefit of picking a fight. He lost (laughs) two lab technicians to explosions, and a third lost an eye. Oh, my And then later quit uh, Dewar's employ. Yeah. So, you know, who says Victorian science was dry and stuffy? Wow. It was filled with explosions. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he was a master violinist. I think they kept him at the Royal Institute so he could perform his Christmas vi- uh, violin concertos. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I assume as you're doing research, ideas are coming to you about how this would be formatted. I sort of outline as I go along so that I then can focus my research on only those points that are salient, that would either confirm my opinion or make me radically change my point of view. Ah, okay. Which has happened. Like anyone doing research, if you go into it with a preconceived notion without the willingness to change that 
preconceived notion, then you're not really doing research at that point. You're just looking for things to prove your own exactly. point of view. Yeah, I've, I've changed directions a couple of times. Okay. Mostly over the, um, the dissemination and marketing of the thermos bottle to Americans in the years around World War I. Mm. The thermos bottle company was the original, but Stanley, the up-and-comer, in many ways was the more radical marketer. I go through flea markets all the time now, and there's always either thermos or, I don't know if I've seen a Stanley one. People hold on to them. Yeah. Uh, I own several, so <laughs> I go to the same <laughs> flea markets and uh, antique stores and buy them, even though I'm running out of room. Oh, no. A question occurs to me, uh, not unlike when I'm creating a new series of art. For me, because of my commercial background, I'm often thinking about who the target audience would be and whether or not it would be something that they would expect or even want. Now, when you're deciding on something like the thermos or Barberton chicken, do you have an idea already that this would be something that is a saleable idea? Or is it the concept of the how the, the micro-histories you think people would be interested in it? Or is it because this is your own research, your own rabbit hole to go down? Yeah, it's the latter, really, that okay. I write for an audience of one, okay. me, and I have a great time. I laugh when I'm <laughs> writing. But, you know, I was in the book business for 40 years, so I, I have a sense of how things can be marketed. So okay. I never really do anything without a sense that there might be a handful of other people who okay. might share my interest. The Barberton book, I thought for sure I was going to sell 600 copies of. I think I'm almost up to three times that now. Wow. And, you know, for a small book about something that's known in, shall we say, a 10-mile area, that's that's pretty good return. That is amazing. Yeah. yeah. And fortunately, there have been others who have, you know, had traveled this road before me with weird histories. But uh, there's so many aspects to the thermos bottle. As I said, you've got science, business, and food, because the thermos revolutionized the way people ate. Mm. They could take things on picnics. Workmen, for the first time, could take hot soup, hot coffee. The reliance on things like diners and roach coaches, as they call them, those <laughs> little carts that sell food at construction sites. Yeah. They didn't have to rely on those. You know, Their wife could make a stew the night before. They could have it for lunch the next day. This is fascinating uh, from both the aspect of the subject matter you're exploring, but it's also fascinating to me in terms of the process and how you go about putting these things together. Um, well, I can tell you the origin of the idea. There's a company that does a series of books. I think they're called Everyday Objects. They're little books, uh, maybe 100, 120 pages, okay. uh, on things like the high heel, the hamburger, things of that sort. This is sort of like the, the series that uh, my kids enjoyed watching a few years ago called you know How It's Made. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's how it's made for a more academic market. They, they had a call out for proposals. Trust me, I've had more proposals than uh, Mickey Rooney <laughs> and as much success. But anyway, um, <laughs> they sent out for proposals, like a, a history of uh, an everyday object. And I said, what about the thermos bottle? And, uh, oh, they were so enthused. They did not hesitate before they sent their no letter back. Oof. But the idea wouldn't let me go. I started to research it. And I just became fascinated because this research has taken me into physics. For the first time in my life, I'm reading books on physics. I'm reading more about um, uh, the Renaissance, learning more about um, the early days of advertising. Mm. It's fascinating. I have another, um, another Facebook page mm -hmm. 
which is called the Coltner Mind Control Method, LLC. And it is both a history site and a book marketing site. Every day, I go to the website called onthisday.com mm-hmm. and find out some tidbit of ancient history. And then I write about it a little bit and then suggest a book that goes along with the topic. Oh, wow. It could be anything from the birthday of the great and powerful. I wasn't able to post today, but today is the anniversary of the death of Ezra Pound. Okay. And as fate would have it, I was at St. Elizabeth's Hospital. And as literary people know, Ezra Pound spent his last days at St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital in D.C., I was not at my hospital for mental reasons, but I thought of Pound when I entered. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Mirrors. Yep. Always going exactly. on. Uh, when I started doing this podcast, one of the things I noticed was just how much life, history, creativity, everything is a continuum. It's There's no... We mark things as discrete points of something was invented or someone was born or died or whatever like that, but it's always a continuum that keeps on relating back to itself. That's one of the themes of my next book. I can't remember if it was Tacitus who said, success has many fathers. Mm. But whatever it is, uh, failure is an orphan. It's words to that effect. If you cut to the second half of the line, which is the one everybody focuses on, and you just look at the success has many fathers, that's so true. Yeah. I mean, who is the father of the thermos bottle? Is it the ancient Egyptians working out suction pumps? Is it Galileo's student, Evangelista. Was that his name? It may have been his first name. Oh, he and I are on first name basis. <laughs> um, was it the members of the Royal Society in, in England who were experimenting with all sorts of different things? William Crookes created the Crookes tube just to show the existence of cathode rays. And from Crookes's invention in 1850, we now have the radio, the television, and the computer. Oh All gosh. because of the vacuum tube. Crookes was a contemporary of Dewar. So Dewar knew his work. Did Dewar invent the vacuum flask? Or was he just toying with the one that Crookes had worked on? Yeah. There were French scientists who had preceded him. Then, when another uh, person, shall we say, adapted Dewar's idea, <laughs> Dewar sued. The man involved, which is a man named um, Reinhold Berger, said, uh-uh. Yours is a flask for lab use. Mine is a bottle for keeping hot coffee in. Going to a more slightly more personal note, what drives you to get up in the morning and go, I've found this thermos to uh, obsess about, for lack of a better term. Let me go down that rabbit hole and create something that I can then show somebody else. Well, I'm glad you asked that question, because I am perhaps less successful at it than I should be. But the truth is, when I retired from a fairly fast-paced, high-pressure job, Mm -hmm. I knew that if I didn't do something, I would just atrophy. I have three TVs, and they are all warm as we speak now. (laughs) So I didn't just want to sit in front of the TV all day. Knowing my own proclivities to be lazy, I vowed to myself that I would go down to my office every day from nine until one and do something, whether it was research, reading, playing spider solitaire, it didn't matter, <laughs> but I had to be sitting at my desks in, the, in, in my desk in the hope that it would spur me to do something. 
I do that. Okay. It's not easy, but I force myself to go down there and try to look up at least one fact of interest every day, preferably something relevant to one of the topics I'm researching, because I'm researching a number of things at once. I was going to say, you couldn't help but to mm-hmm. follow the tangents, and who knows where you end up at that point. Yeah, but, I have three uh, writing projects on on the schedule. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know which one's going to be next, assuming I finally get this thermos one done. But um, one of it has to do with publishing, and the other is a novel about uh, spies in D.C. in the 50s. Oh, wow. Going back to something I was thinking about earlier, you, you had said that the Barberton Chicken book you projected was going to sell 600, ended up selling three times that. Mm-hmm. You know, a young author out there who's trying to put something together and either sending it out or self-publishing, what is a good... Well, just about for any other trade publisher, by trade I mean those you buy at bookstores, not ones that are sold to students in universities. For a trade book to sell fewer than 2,000 copies would be an unmitigated disaster. But for a small regional publisher like American Palette, it was a pretty healthy showing. Matter of fact, they immediately got in touch with me and said, we're ready for the next book. I was ready for the next book, but it sort of fell by the wayside uh, when I had a major stumbling block in my research. I said, I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. Hmm. But, you know, for a book to sell, let's say, four to 8,000 copies for a new book, that's fairly successful for, say, a debut author okay. uh, without a really major hook. Yeah. I think when Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses landed on the bestseller list, I believe there were fewer than 8,000 copies in print. Oh, wow. I might be wrong about that, but I remember it was a very low number. All right. Ron... What would you like your legacy to be? Oh, jeez. Um, he was nice to cats. <laughs> okay. Oh, who was I? Oh, God, this old cornball. Remember, it's nice to be good, but it's better to be nice. I hope I'm remembered by a small circle of friends as an eccentric who loved to talk about odd things. Uh, any lasting legacy I don't care about. I mean, I... Years from now, if somebody were to stumble on that chicken book and say, this is really interesting, my spirit, wherever it may be, will do a little dance of joy. But legacy doesn't interest me. Okay. Um, Here and now does. Being with the ones I love, being in the words of Bill and Ted, excellent to each other. That's what makes the world go round. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cherry Bomb the Podcast. I'm your host, Matt McKee, and today I was speaking with Ron Coltnow about his book, Barberton Fried Chicken, an Ohio original, among other subjects. Uh, we covered a lot of ground. I'll have links to his website and social media in the show notes and at theartofmattmckee.com. Just click on the link for Cherry Bomb the Podcast in the top menu. I'm also available on Twitter for questions, comments, anything you like, at McKeePhoto. Please share this episode to your Facebook and Twitter feed and to all of your social media so your friends can find and listen and join in the conversation. This episode of Cherry Bomb the Podcast could not have been done without the help of Suzanne Schultz and Canvas Fine Arts, the specialists in coaching for creatives. And of course, editing as always by the sublime Bill Shamlian at Orb Sound. Thanks for listening, and let's start the conversation.